All right, good morning, guys. Let's, uh, we're going to change it up a little bit. Let's flip over to Psalm uh, 139. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things I've uh, appreciated about Paul's letter that's been a blessing to me personally, I guess is how I would put it, uh, I, I like it when you find things in the Bible that are, uh, I guess we'd call equations, where Paul just says, or someone, Peter or whatever, just says, hey, if this is happening, then this happens. And if you do this, then this will happen. And it makes, I think, walking with God a lot easier, or at least uh, understanding what's going on, right? And so when Paul says, hey, look, if you yield to your old nature, that nature that, that you know, Jesus told us, from the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? So if we're expressing rage or jealousy or frustration, that comes from us, right? Our old nature. But he tells us that because we're Christians, we have a new nature that was created in Christ through his resurrection, and we can say no to the old nature and say yes to that and begin to walk in it, and that'll have an incredible, uh, incredible amount of fruit right, in our lives for us and for other people. Uh, the reason I want to take a, a break today and kind of go to Psalm 139 is that sometimes, maybe this doesn't happen to you, but sometimes for some of us, uh, we can get discouraged. And we get discouraged because a lot of times when we, even when we see these great equations, we see these ideas of how we can walk with Jesus, sometimes that reflects back to us our own failures, uh, which sometimes are many. Uh, I think they're always many. I just think sometimes we think they're not many. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's just a, that's anecdotal evidence right there. But uh, at the end of the day, when in Psalm 139, David writes this, this particular song or poem uh, that he writes, and he writes it about God, God's omniscient, or his omniscience and his omnipresence, that he knows everything, that he's there all the time, essentially, if we could just kind of explain it that way. And the reason, you know, you guys know me, I love David, and I don't love David because he killed his 10,000s or something like that. I love David because he is a man that God has labeled as a man after his own heart. And he was a man that none of us would be friends with. We wouldn't. Would you be friends with a man who, after being told by God not to number the people, numbered the people and cost like 56,000 people their lives? Would you be friends with a man who should have been out and fighting with his army, but instead is chilling on his roof and sees an attractive woman and says to his, his guards, bring that woman to me, and has sex with her? And then after she sends a message back and says, hey, I'm pregnant, he instead say, says, you know what, I better grab the, the priest and come clean with this, not in a Catholic, you know, in a Catholic way, but just in a, in a very Judeous way, and, and suffer the penalty for that, which would have been death uh, by the Israeli law. But instead, instead of doing that, he decides that he's going to bring that particular man whom he took his wife to himself, and he's going to get him drunk. And he makes sure he gets drunk. Because he, he tells the servant, when, when Uriah gets her, you make sure his cup stays full. And he keeps telling him, drink and be merry, drink and be merry. And they eat together, they feast together while his army is warring. And then he tells Uriah, hey, once he's good and drunk, the, the, the passage is clear. Uriah is inebriated, in a sense, at the hand of David. And you can say, oh, he can't blame David. I don't know. If the king is telling you to keep drinking and you're feasting with him, would we have the guts to be like, you know what, David, stick it. I'm not going to do that. So he's drunk. And David tells him, now go home and, and, and have relations, sexual relations with your wife. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it so when the, his baby is born, 
with this other man's wife, the people will go, oh, the baby's premature because remember Uriah came back and he went home and we probably know what happened, right? And Uriah, as a drunk man, says, David, O king, the whole army is sleeping on the ground in war. How could I go back to my wife? I'm not going to do it. And so he goes outside and he sleeps on the steps to David's palace. So David says, okay, okay. Gets to the next night. He says, come in, drink with me. Make sure he gets drunk again. Hangs out and says, now go hook up with your wife. And Uriah says, I can't do it, man. And he goes and he sleeps on the steps. And so David realizes I'm in big trouble. If this guy's not going to have relations with his wife, then there's going to be a baby born when he wasn't there. And so what he does is he, he has a, 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 he's kind of shady sometimes, a general named Joab. And he writes a letter to Joab and he says, hey, Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this particular city and begin to assault it. It's got a lot of walls. And when you get too close to that city, I, and, and men start to die because they're taking arrows because you got too close to the city. Not just Uriah, men, just innocent people. They start to die taking arrows, then retreat, but tell Uriah you need a forward guard and ask him to try to find some shelter, but the rest of the army retreats so that he can watch the wall. And so he sends that letter with Uriah. He seals it, gives it to Uriah, his own death warrant, his own, his own condemnation, and Uriah brings it to Joab. Joab reads it and says, okay, I'll do that, and he does it. And after he does it and Uriah's dead, he sends a message to, to David, and he says, it's done. What you wanted is done. So not only does Uriah die, not only does David take this woman to himself, who's the wife of another woman, he kills a bunch of men of his own army in order to cover it up. Do you remember how fired up people got about Benghazi? Do you remember how fired up people got about uh, Ruby Ridge or Waco, Texas, when the government slaughtered people? Our government slaughtered people. Remember how we cried out for blood and we had memes? Well, memes weren't invented yet at Waco or Ruby Ridge, but we had political cartoons, right? And, you had, and we had trials and we had all these things, right? We wouldn't vote for David. Would you? If, if, if the, you know, in the, in the primaries or whatever, you know, the, the, whatever they call them, the midterms are coming up, if you knew that your options for your congressperson had done all those things, plus more. Remember, David had a serious anger issue. Remember, he sends a, a, a messenger to Nabal and Abigail, and he says, hey, give my guy some food. And Nabal sends, tells the messenger, uh, yeah, you go tell David that Saul's going to end up wrecking his, you know, destroying him, so I do not want to be caught on, that, on your team when Saul kills you. And so David, when he gets the message, he stands up and he uses an interesting turn of phrase because he stands up to the guy and says he was incensed. He was angry. And he stands up and he goes, we're going to go kill everyone that pees against the wall. Men. We're going to go kill every single man that belongs to that guy's house. We're going to kill every one of that man's sons, every one of his brothers, every one of his servants, everyone who's a man at that guy's household, we're killing him. And he saddles up and he goes to do it. And it's Abigail who like runs out and he's like, oh, my husband's kind of an idiot. Please don't kill him. <laughs> right? That's David. But it doesn't stop there because, you know, and I should say, I guess I should say this. David did incredible things, right? He's literally called by God a man after God's own heart. David is labeled a man after God's own heart as, as, a, 
it, could, could we put them in the terrible person column, I feel like? We should all be in that column, but we like to kind of, you know, have that column anyway. I think most of us would be like, if you were interviewed on the street and said, is this a good person? You'd probably be like, no, they're not. Think of Abraham, right? Abraham sells Sarah twice to a harem. Not once, twice. Because he says, here's the thing. You're old, but you're super hot. And when we get into the land, what's going to happen is Pharaoh, in one case, and Abimelech in another, two different people, he's going to see you that you're hot, and he's going to kill me to take you. So what I need you to do is, whatever happens, just say you're my sister, and it's weird, they, were, they, they shared uh, the same father. So they had different mothers. Him and Sarah had different mothers, but they shared the same father, which might creep us out a little bit, but it's the way. Not for us, for them. <laughs> but he says, go and tell him, go tell him. They're just, what does it say you're my sister? And she goes along with it, and she's, she's praised for it in the New Testament. But she goes along, and twice she's sold. You know how she gets delivered both times? In a vision or in a dream, God comes to both Pharaoh and Abimelech and tells them, if you touch that woman, I will kill you and every male in your household. And so both of them were like, ooh. And they go back to Abraham, like, what did you do to me? You lied to me. This is your wife. God said he was going to kill me because of you. So God protects Sarah and Abraham both times. Abraham is the one, well, I should say Sarah comes up with this great plan. God says, I am going to give you a son. It doesn't happen right away. And so Sarah says, hey, look, it's not working out for us. Take my maid, have a kid. We might go, that's weird. It was very, actually fairly normal in, the, in the, that ancient Eastern culture. The, 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 the servant of the, the wife would have the baby and it would be, be the wife's baby. And so that's what they do. That's Hagar. Well, where'd they get Hagar? She's Egyptian. Could it be that she was part of the exchange for Sarah? Again, that's, that's, we're just thinking. But anyway, so Hagar has a kid. Abraham says, sure, I'll, I'll hook up with her and have a kid with her. Why not? Is that your suggestion? She has a kid. And then he creates this very weird dynamic. And when God says, I'm going to give you a son, his, Abraham's response, this is important to understand. Abraham, the man of faith, the man justified by faith, the man who trusts God in all these places, right? Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael will live before you. So when God says, it's going to be Isaac that the promise comes through, Abraham's response is, I don't want it to be Isaac. Ishmael's 13, I want it to be Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Great man of faith, right? What about his cousin, his nephew, Lot? Right, they are traveling together, and Lot decides, hey, I'm going to pick this land. Lot ends up in uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? And so he's in there, and, and remember, God comes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to go destroy this, and then they have a little conversation about it. And essentially, when, when the angels come, they're, they're cloaked as men, they look like humans. When they come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they kind of rack out in the local city square, right? And for whatever reason or however it happens, Lot sees them and says, no, 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 no. you cannot stay out here. Just come in my house. Just stay in my house tonight. So what happens? It says all the men of the city. So generally speaking, does it mean literally all? We don't know. Uh, but a lot. A good percentage at the very least, if not every single one of the men of the city, come knock on his door and say, hey, those two dudes that you brought in, we need you to send them out so we can all systematically rape them. 
That's where Lot lives. That's what his hometown is like now. So Lot, this man of faith, says, hey, 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 these guys are visitors. Don't do this to my visitors. I'd be a bad host if you did this to my visitors. Take my daughter. And he kicks his daughter out the door. And the only thing that stops it is that the angels are like, I, I don't know, in my mind, they do like a double take, like, what? <laughs> what? And they blind the dudes. They, they miraculously blind the guys that are basically causing a riot outside the door. And Lot is so disconnected from God that when he goes to tell his kids, hey, funny story, God's going to destroy this place in a couple hours, we got to go. It says that they thought he was kidding. They didn't listen to him. They laughed at him. And, and, and so some leave or whatever. I don't remember the percentage of who leaves. I believe they all end up leaving. But they leave because the angels dragged them out. What does Peter call Lot in the New Testament? Righteous Lot. After Lot left Sodom and he saved, you know where he went? He went to Zoar. It means little. He, they told him to go to the mountains, and he said, I don't want to go to the mountains. Send me to Zoar. It means little. It's just a little town. So he goes to Zoar, because they flee with what we understand to be almost like nothing. After Zoar, some people recognize him there, and they're like, hey, aren't you like the few people that lived from Sodom and Gomorrah? And evidently, they weren't super happy about it. Maybe they had relatives there. We don't know. So he goes up, and he goes, and he takes his two daughters, and he runs to the mountains, because his wife dies. Remember that? She turns around, she dies. So they go to the mountains. So in all the fleeing and all the needing to get somewhere and whatever supplies they picked up in Zoar and however that worked, they end up with a ton of alcohol in the cave because clearly that's the wisest thing you could do. And so his family is so broken, their values and understanding are so tarnished that the daughters come up with an idea. They say, hey, we have all this booze and we have no kids. And we're going to be shamed in society because we have no kids. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get Pops crazy drunk tonight. And then we'll have sex with him. You do it tonight. And then we'll get him crazy drunk again. And you can have sex with him tomorrow. His daughters. That's his daughter's plans to not be shamed in society so they can have kids. So they do it. They get pregnant. And they end up giving birth to basically who, the people that would become the largest enemies of Israel throughout history. But he's righteous lot. David is a man after God's own heart. We don't really know too much about Isaac. There's two chapters, and he basically like does some wandering, then kind of settles down and gets hooked up with a wife. You're like, that's cool. But his wife, has, they have Jacob. And, 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 and the wife, his wife is told, prophetically told, Jacob is going to get the promise from his brother Esau. Esau's the older, but Jacob is the one who's going to get it. And yet, Jacob and his wife, it's really, or not his wife, but Jacob and his mom, the mom con comes up with this whole concoction of like taping fur onto himself or gluing it. They didn't have tape, I guess. Maybe they had secret tape, Jewish tape. I don't know. But you know, somehow they adhere goat fur to him because his brother's really hairy. Which are like, that must be, that's some straight fur ball right there. Like, this, this, this is serious business. So they, they adhere goat hair to the top of his hands and to the back of his neck. And then he throws on one of Esau's shirts because it says he smells like the field. And you're like, mm, is that really what a field smells like? I don't know. So he throws on the shirt and then he goes to his dad. They literally 
hatched this plan to trick his dad, who is blind and old, to get the promise that God said, you're going to get. Oh, these men and women of faith, right? So why go through all that? And, well, actually, I, you know, we can go into the New Testament with Peter. Peter's a great guy, right? He's an apostle, got some standing, followed Jesus around, had a few setbacks, almost drowned once, but, I mean, he's a solid dude. It's 15 years-ish, right around 15 years, 10 to 15 years, where Peter has the vision where the sheet comes down and God tells him, kill and eat. 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, Peter says he's never eaten any unclean meat. When we have verses in John that the commentary in John says that Jesus to the disciples declared all the foods clean. So, so Peter has gone for 10 years ignoring some of the things that Jesus said. And he still won't eat shellfish. Peter, we also know, and this is kind of wild, James sends men to Peter at a certain church, and at that particular church, Peter begins to stop eating with Gentiles as a Jew. So there's a lot to unpack there, right? James, from Jerusalem sent men to Peter, and when those guys got there, it caused Peter to stop eating with Gentiles. Like, no fellowship, won't hang out with you. It gets so bad that Barnabas, remember, the son of encouragement, the guy who, like, started the church at Antioch or went there to help them grow, right? It says that he gets carried away with it, too. So, Paul says in a later in Galatians, he says, I had to stand up and oppose Peter to the face in a public church meeting. Peter denies him three times. Peter tries to hack off Malchus's head. I'm sorry, I don't believe that Peter was like doing this precision strike with one of their two swords. And he's such a swordsman that he does like a warning shot off the bow and takes off Malchus's ear. I just don't believe that a fisherman has that kind of precision. I think, and it's, in, it's an inference, I believe wholeheartedly he was swinging a sword at the dude's head, right? And he just nicks him in the ear, and then Jesus heals it. You have all these things that Peter did. He stumbles all the disciples, remember that? Jesus says, hey, I want you to go wait here on this mountain. And he's like, I'm going to go fishing. See, the, the thing is like all throughout human Christian history, human Jewish history, all throughout the history of faith, people have sucked at life. All right? This is really important. And God has continued to be with them. So it's in those parameters, it's in those places, it's in those hearts, those lives that, lives that David writes this psalm. And I think it's really noteworthy that God uses and blesses and promises his, his kindness and his presence to incredibly destructive and broken people because they keep coming back to him and asking for it. He says here in Psalm 139 and verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. So he has multiple verses in this particular song, and and hopefully we'll get to them all. But in this one, he's going to use what they call mirisms, and and he's going to use essentially opposites or extremes to illustrate that God is always among us. Does that make sense? So in this first one, he says this, You searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. Let's work backwards. So from afar is not distance. He's not saying you're way up in heaven, and I'm way down here, and somehow you work in my life. In fact, the psalm is actually proving the opposite of that. It's refuting that kind of ideology. The word afar is referencing time. So David's not saying, you're way far away from me, but you can still somehow see me, like, he, like God has some sort of telescope. What he's saying is, from far off in time, you did these things. You searched me, and you knew me. This is really important, because for a lot of us, especially, we've been going through some, I, I would say, some challenging ideas that are calling for us to reform our lives, to really to, to move away from personal rights and personal assertion and personal dominance and instead to take up our crosses where Paul is just laying it out for us so clearly saying, if you do not build with God's wisdom, if you insist on this world's wisdom, which is self-preeminence, you will only destroy yourself and the people around you. And that's a hard word sometimes. And not only is it a hard word, it's an overwhelming word because sometimes we can look at our hearts and we, th- we can think like, there's no way I can move forward with this. There's no way I can be a part of this. There's no way that God will continue to work in me. You ever felt that way? I'm too far gone. There's no way back. He's given up on me. I'm not worth it. All these things that we have, these are lies from Satan. And what we have here is a God-inspired song from David in the bad person category. Right? And he's saying, God, you've always known me. You've always searched me. Nothing surprises him. You know, it's interesting, us as human beings, have you ever held back something about yourself because you didn't want to be rejected? Like, typically, when we don't meet people, you don't say, Hi, I have a lot of baggage in my life. <laughs> right? Yeah. Usually we want to kind of like IV drip that, right? You don't just bolus the whole thing in there, a big giant, you know, 60 centimeter, uh, uh, milliliter, no, you, you drip it in. You hang that bag and you get the drip going, and that's how the bad stuff comes in. We kind of ease people into it. Why? We don't want to be rejected. We don't want people to go, wow, you're too much for me. And it can be with like silly things. You know, I talk a lot. I know I talk a lot. And so if I'm, usually if I'm, if I'm meeting with someone, I actually do. I actually, if you ever sit down and meet with me, I put my hand over my mouth. Do you know why? I sit there like this. I do that because I just want to talk. And, and so a lot of times I think, like, somebody will be saying something and I'll want to say something. Because I'll think, like, oh, I already have the answer for that. It's the Bible. You know, I don't actually do that. But you know what I'm saying? And so it's... Just that action of having to move my hand away from my mouth stops me from speaking. And so when I hang out with new people, I usually try to not talk a lot. Because I don't want to be like, wow, this guy really loves himself. I don't want to know the truth. You know? So a lot of times we'll do things and we'll refrain and we'll hold back because we say, if they knew that, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. 
And here's the thing. There is times to interact with people and respond to them based on what they have done or are doing. Okay, we're not saying there's no... If someone runs in here and says, I'm going to kill everybody, we're not going to think to ourselves, well, I don't really want to judge him before the time. I mean, you know, could you maybe tell me about what's happening in your life? No, we're going to jump on that dude and beat him to a pulp till the cops get here. <laughs> right? We're going to subdue him. We're going to do it until the threat is over. How's that, right? Okay, so... <laughs> We're not going to like try to reflect and be like, well, maybe there's some things he's just going through. No, we're going to stop it. So there are times that you do interact with people based on what's happening. Does that make sense? But in general, aside from the extreme outliers, we're not to deal with people that way. We're to look at them with agape love. We're to care about them. We're to discuss these things. And more importantly, that's how Jesus deals with us. Now, he has an advantage in that we can't physically harm him, and there's not, that, and there, there's not that urgency per se. That doesn't necessarily apply to him in that way. But he, he, and this is living proof, God interacts with us regardless of what we've done, regardless of how we've shoved him aside. This is really great. We've never surprised God. He's never in his life said, I never saw that coming. He never said, I can't believe you said that. He's never said, I can't believe you did that. It's never happened. He's searched you, and he's known you from afar off, and he's accepted you in Christ. See, that's what, one of the things that makes the gospel so powerful. It isn't like a, a fake religion that says, well, this event happened, so now you can try really hard, and if you try hard enough, then you can get to heaven. Right, that's Islam, that's Buddhism. That's, that's that. No, this is that Christ paid everything that we could ever owe, that we could ever think or say or do, and he took those things that we did and he nailed them to his cross. And when he said the new covenant in, is in my blood, he meant it. That the whole covenant, what? The covenant of how a person can be with God. The covenant that God made with human beings where he said, if you trust my son and his sacrifice, you will forever be in my presence. That was the covenant. And Jesus said that that covenant was fulfilled, ratified, if you will, in his blood. So there's no other part that enters in to that covenant save what Jesus did that we receive by faith. He has searched us, and he's known us. He searched David, and he knew David. And he never rejected him. Was there judgment? Yeah. Did David, David lost a kid to judgment. It's, it's old covenant stuff. But David lost a kid to judgment. David lost friends to judgment. His son Absalom is killed because he was a bad father. Absalom is in Jerusalem for two years after they have their little dust up. And David never goes to see him. You ever think about that? Never interacts with him. Never invites him to the palace. It's what allows Absalom to essentially kind of win the hearts of the people. And he's eventually slain. But David says, you've never been surprised. You discern my thoughts. He says there in verse 3, you search my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. So there again, you have this comparison. When you're lying down, you know, you go to bed at night and you go to sleep, you're doing nothing. Versus all his ways. 
So it's not only that he knows his thoughts, he knows what words are going to come out, he knows what paths he's going to take, he knows when he's laid down, and he knows when he's risen up, he knows all those things. He says, verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knew all the destructive things that David would write. He knew that David would write Uriah's own death warrant and hand it to him. He knew that. He wasn't surprised by that. He knows the words that you've said in secret to others that have ruined them. He knows the words that have been said to you in secret. He knew it from afar off. He, he knew it before you ever walked the earth, what you would do, what you would say, and yet he chose you and he saved you because you trusted him. These are important ideas that when we're working through our faith, when we're considering how can I walk with God, how can I move from where I have been, whether it's in a, in a sense a general area of, of rebellion or in an individual area in my life, how can I begin to move forward? We first move forward by knowing that God already knows, and he always did. And it's not like, you know, it's a little bit different. Like if you're a kid, do you remember when you had to confess something to your parents? I remember... One, this is really funny. I was probably about five years old, and we went over to some friends' houses, and I accidentally, they had this giant blow up, you know, I was five years old, so it was giant to me, but this giant, like, blow-up Easter bunny, and we were kind of playing with it, throwing it around back and forth. It was really big, and that's why we were having a ball doing it, and this is, I, I mean, this, this is 41 years ago, so I still remember it like it was yesterday, and I got the, I got the rabbit and I accidentally was like standing on one of the arms and I was trying to like throw it and I couldn't throw it. And so I popped it. I ripped one of the arms kind of half off. And it seems silly, but the amount of shame that came rolling into my mind and my heart, like I was devastated. I couldn't believe I had done that. And then the, the person I was with was like, oh no, you popped. They didn't yell or anything. They're just like, oh no, you popped it. And I remember just trudging down the hall with this deflated bunny, just like, and like having to go out to the other parents and be like, it's popped. And as a true, true mature kid, I, at first I was like, I don't know how. <laughs> Caught me totally by surprise. I was just, you know, just spontaneously ripped. It was so weird. It was like the temple. It just, <laughs> Jesus resurrection. You know? No, you know what I'm saying? Like, but having to confess that because they don't know something and now you have to tell them something. And I felt stupid. I ripped it stepping on it and all these things. And so to have to communicate that. The great thing about our confession, when the Bible uses in the New Testament the word confession, it doesn't mean that you're confessing like solving someone else's ignorance about your life. It literally means to say the same thing. That's the, in the Greek, the word confession means to say the same thing. Because God already knows. So when we confess our sin, number one, it's already forgiven in Christ. We're not confessing sin as if uh, to find some sort of, you know, forgiveness. We are forgiven. We are forgiven in Christ. If you try to say that you have to for, you know, confess sin in order to be forgiven, what you're literally saying is a person becomes unsaved when they do, when the, at the moment of sin. Because why do you get to get into heaven? Because you're righteous. So if you're saying that sin is imputed to you in the moment that you sin, what you're saying is you become unrighteous. Which is not, that's not in the Bible. That's not how it works. Because the covenant is where? In his blood. The covenant isn't in our obedience. The covenant isn't in our jolly great faith. 
The covenant is in none of that. It's in his blood. We just receive it in faith. So when we come to God and we confess to him, we tell him what's going on in our life, we are not informing him, nor are we begging for forgiveness that's already been accomplished in Christ. We are restoring fellowship with him from our side by agreeing with saying the same thing. You're right, Lord. I am a jealous person. I am an angry person. I am a fearful person. I am uh, willing to lash out. I am willing, whatever it might be. I am trying to self-medicate. You're right, God. All we're doing is saying the same thing. It's really important because he already knows. And he hasn't condemned us knowing every single thing that we'll do or say. Then he says this in verse 5. This is crazy. He says, look, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. So even in the midst of this crazy life that we live and, and of sin and repentance, of care and falling short and all these things that we go through, there's still this reality that you, we're hemmed in. That God is sovereign. You know, Paul puts it this way. He says that we've never been tempted in a way that we can't find victory. He says we've never had a rare temptation that's not common to human beings. Everything we've gone through, and he says, and with every temptation that occurs in our life, God doesn't tempt us, right? We know that. The scripture is clear. Don't let anyone say that God tempts them. God has never tempted anyone. But there's things in this earth, in our sinful world, in our own hearts that allow us to be tempted. And it says, but God always provides a way out. So it's, we're hemmed in. Nothing has ever occurred in our life that couldn't work out for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We are always the ones that decide whether or not can work, God can work something for good. We are not saying that everything that happens is good. It is not. We know that experientially. But we are saying is even the worst from a yielded heart can bear some sort of good fruit. That's what we're saying. But we're the only one. It's crazy. God doesn't get to decide that. The Holy Spirit doesn't get to decide that. We decide that. Will this work for good? Because he says, I'll work it for good. It's a promise, right? He says, I will work it for good. But we're the ones that get to decide whether that happens or not. And it's going to come through our attitude and our humility, whether we're willing to humble ourselves. But he has us hemmed in. You are hemmed in, even though he knows every bad thing you've ever done, will do, thought, said, all of it. He has his hand upon you. He cares for you. He's going to then go say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The word wonderful here doesn't mean, um, like, I feel in bliss. Like, oh, that was a wonderful cheesecake or something. It's the idea of, it's full of wonder. I can't understand it. It's intimidating, actually, is some of the, the uh, implication there. It's a truth that's intimidating. It's a truth that's so incredible, I can't even comprehend it, is what David is saying. And so he says, it's too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. I can't fully understand how good God is. I can't fully understand how far he is on my team. And how for me he is. So then he's going to say in verse 7, and this is, in, this is interesting because he, he addresses it from a fleeing point of view. But he says, where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, but the night is bright as the day. 
for darkness is as light with you. So now, and these are probably some of the more famous verses of the psalm, but now he lays this out and he, and he poses a question. Where could he go? Whether it's fleeing, when you're fleeing out of fear from something, right? That, isn't that kind of man's modus operandi, man's MO? That when we have done something, we want to flee. That started with Adam, right? They sin. And where do you see God? God walking through the garden saying, well, Adam, where are you? Was God really stumped? Did he, have, he really looked around a few trees and be like, hey, where are those two characters? No, he knows exactly where they are. This is a much more of a spiritual and, and kind of a philosophical question. Adam, where are you? And where was he? He was hiding with fig leaf clothes on. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? They're really rough. Like It's probably like the worst leaf you could have used in that whole garden to make clothes out of. And so he's, he, they, make leaves, they make these clothes, and they're hiding with terrible, uncomfortable clothes on. And, and he's calling to them with the same things, knowing what they would do, knowing that they would hide, knowing that they would eat the fruit. And yet there he is in the garden saying, where are you, Adam? Come out to me. And, and interestingly enough, when they come out, one of the first things God does is provide for them skins for clothing. And this is an inference, so you can throw it away. But I would put forward that the first blood sacrifice ever made for man was by God. He clothed them with the skin from a blood sacrifice. Pretty incredible. They didn't make the sacrifice. He made it for them. So you have this from the beginning until the end, the fact that God is for you, the fact that God, you can't flee from his presence. He will pursue you, which is both perhaps scary if we want to rebel, but incredibly comforting if we're just honest about who we are. We cannot flee from his presence. And, and so then he, again, he makes some more um, kind of extremes here. He says here, oops, he says here, uh, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. Now this isn't heaven in the sense of like the, the dimension of heaven, the ethereal. This is more the heavens, like the stratosphere. So what he's saying is, if I were to go all the way up into the heavens, as far as you possibly could from earth, he says, you're there. And then he says, if, if I go to Sheol, now your translation may say, say hell. Sheol is not hell. Sheol is, it's, it literally means the, the place of the dead. That's what it means, the grave, sometimes it's translated. Think of Sheol as, remember in uh, Luke, uh, whatever chapter it might be, I, I didn't look it up. Remember in Luke, we have the Lazarus and the rich man. And when they both die, they go to certain places. And the, the poor man, not because he's poor, but because he's a man of faith, he goes to Lazarus or to uh, Abraham's bosom, which is a place of comfort. But the rich man goes to Hades, a place of fire and torment. That's Sheol. That's the grave. So David is saying that even if I should make my bed in Sheol, even if I go to the grave, you will still be with me. So I could go to the highest heavens or I could be six feet under, but you're still with me, is what David is saying there. And this, remember, David, mass murderer, taking women that don't belong to him. He says, by inspiration of the Spirit, you're with me. That's the kind of grace that ticks you off, isn't it? Isn't that the kind of grace where you go, no, David should not have that. He has no right to say that. He never earned that. In fact, he like disearned it. 
He forfeited it when he did those things. Because that's how we respond to others and how others respond to us. You forfeited goodness when you did that. And God says, not so with me. Were the consequences for his actions? Yeah, big consequences. Shame, losing a child, all sorts of things happened in an old covenant type of way. But God's presence was never on the table. His endorsement was never on the table. It was never something that was going to be yarded away from him because God always knew what he would do to him. Or I should say, what God always knew what David would do to him. Does that make sense? He says in verse 10, this is a commentary on uh, verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning to dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. And it's kind of an interesting saying because the, the idea of the wings of the morning is that as it's, it's the wings of the sunrise. So in, in essence, we might say it this way. If I could fly at the speed of light as the rays come up over, because in, the inference there is as the, as the sun comes up over the horizon from a sunrise and the beams come out. So if I could go as fast as I possibly could through the, the you know, it's like a sunbeam. Or if I was just stationary, if I was drowned at the bottom of the deepest part of the sea. Kind of, again, two kind of opposites, two extremes. He says, his commentary is this, your right hand shall hold me. We can't run fast enough to get away from God. It's one of the worst things about being a Christian. He just is never going to leave you alone. He loves you too much. Didn't you hate it when your parents would say that to you? I love you too much to do that. And you're like, no, that's not it. You hate me. <laughs> you're just a moron. You don't know what life is really like. Yes, your four-year-old parent is an idiot, but you, as a 13-year-old, were a genius. <laughs> Isn't that what we thought? It's incredible what we thought. And he's just making the same points. He's just saying, look, you're always going to have me in your hand. I got news for you, believers. If you truly know Jesus, if you truly surrendered and, and admitted that you need a Savior, if you truly asked Him into your heart, He will never leave you or forsake you. Never. For better or for worse for you. He never will. And that's one of the worst parts of being a Christian in this world is because you, you have all this spirit in you that says, and you don't fully enjoy it. You can't go just get lit, just crazy schnockered and one night stands and, and be okay with it. Because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you going, I have something better for you. You're destroying yourself. And you go, no, 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 the next party will be better. The next boyfriend, the next girlfriend, they'll be better. They'll fulfill me more. The next job, the next wife, the next kid, the next beer, if I get a 10-year-old scotch instead of a 2-year-old scotch, then I'll be fulfilled. If I get this type of weed instead of that type of weed, then I can finally find peace. If this person would leave me alone or that person wouldn't leave me alone, then I'll be... No. It'll never, ever work because you're a partaker of the divine spirit, is what, what Peter tells us. That you and I actually have partaken of, we've ingested, if you will, spiritually, the spirit of God. And he'll never leave us. And so it's, it's easier just to kind of give up and, and let God into your life. Especially since the promise is if you do that, it'll be incredible. You'll have the joy and the fulfillment that you're looking for. He goes on, he says, If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, 
and light about me, about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And this is interesting because darkness is very disorienting, right? You know, 80% of people that die in fires, they die 15 feet, about 15 feet from the door or a point of egress, whether it's a window or a door. And they typically die. There was a fire in the 70s. It was a carpet warehouse fire, and 15 firefighters died. We, we had to study it a bunch in our, when I used to be in, a, in the volunteer department. And so you study that one a lot. Because 15 firefighters died in one carpet warehouse, and they all died. The farthest one away that died was 10 feet from the door. And what happens is, you know, you do all this crazy training. You, uh, you know, the, one of the trainings, it's like one of the worst training nights there are. You put all your gear on, which is fine. And then they put a shower curtain over your face mask so you can't see anything. And they turn off all the lights. And you uh, basically follow, there's the, the way the hoses connect. It's, it's kind of a funny saying, but it's bump, bump, smooth. And what, the, what it is is there's these uh, ridges, or you know, I'm not sure what you'd call them, uh, on the hoses. And so you feel a bump, and you feel a bump, and then the other part of the, of the uh, coupling is, is smooth. And so you have to feel your way out. So you kind of follow this hose. Well, it's not just like a straight hose to the door. <laughs> it, it, you, have to like, you have to like go through all these different, you go up a ladder and down a ladder, and you do all the lights are off so you can't see anything, and you're breathing air, and you have to go through some really tight spaces. Uh, you go through, uh, you know, for example, when I, so back in the day when I put my gear on, I weighed 335 pounds with all my gear on. And um, even though I'm incredibly skinny, uh, it could be difficult to get through some of those, so those obstacles. So we had to go through like an 18-inch culvert, right? And uh, in the 18-inch culvert, for me and most of the guys I knew, you, can only, you can't reach your hands back. So once you're in it, you're using your fingertips and your boots to kind of scoot you through this culvert. And the reality is you can't, you can't reach your face mask most of the time. So if you run out of air, you're going to die. That's just the way it is. But what it, the whole thing is it's incredibly disorienting. You have no idea where you are. You don't, you're, you're only, the only thing that you can hold to in this case is this hose, right? And if you lose the hose, you're done for. And so, yeah, you're hosed. So the, or not hosed, I don't know. The, uh, I'd have to look at the math on that. But, so, but the point is this. So David's making this point. He's saying, look, even when I'm in my darkest day, even when I'm disoriented, even when I can't even see what the right thing to do is, even when I'm scared, even when it looks hopeless, think of all the things that dark represent to us. He says, you're, it's, he goes, it's nothing to you. You see right through it. Sometimes we create our own darkness, and sometimes people create darkness for us, right? But the reality is no matter how dark a day gets, no matter how sightless or disoriented we, we are, God is not disoriented. He's not confused by it. He's, he, he, he's not wondering how you're going to get out of it. And so you know, every piece of imagery we have here is that we cannot flee God's presence and he will pursue us to the end because he loves us, because he cares for us. And no matter how dark we've made it, if we've turned out all the lights, if we've made sure there was no light around us and we've, we've separated ourselves from any, anyone who could possibly have light to shed in our situation, if we rejected everyone around us that, that shines with the light of Christ, he still sees us. He's still working. He's still guiding. And David is saying this. Have you taken anybody's woman and then killed him recently? I mean, I know we're not supposed to like compare sins, but I mean, honestly, anybody done that recently? 
Don't raise your hand if you have. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. But you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't think any of us are, though. The point is just this. You could go to that extreme, and God has not forsaken you. You could get people killed that didn't deserve to be killed. And God will not forsake you. And that makes us mad sometimes, only when it's for other people. When it's for us, we're like, oh, heck yeah. But it's the truth. It's the grace of God. It's why Paul calls it a scandalous grace. It's why he calls the, the cross, he says, it, the, the cro- he goes, he, he says, I preach the scandal of the cross. Because the cross is scandalous. It would, the cross would never work in an operating society. But there's just forgiveness for every single individual who ever calls upon Jesus. And then that begins a relationship with that person that can never be ran from, that can never be robbed of him. It's incredible. This grace that we have in Christ. He goes on in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Same word. Uh, Intimidating, incredible, unthinkable are your works. My soul knows it right well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately intricately woven in the depths of the earth, and your eyes saw my unformed substance. uh, In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed, uh, excuse me, the days that were formed for me, when when as yet there was none of them. Now this is interesting because David's pointing out, he's saying, look, when I was an embryo, when I was being formed, you not only took part in that. He says, you knitted me together. And here's the thing. Uh, I have never personally knitted. It looks way too complicated to me. Uh, but my, my daughters, I, and here, I'll be honest, I don't know what the difference is between knitting and crocheting, so forgive me ahead of time. I think one has like a hook and a needle, and one has like two needles or something like that. Uh, but all I know is this. When I've observed the ladies in my house do it, and it, it kind of comes and goes in waves at our place. It's, we've kind of been waning for a while, but who knows? I don't know. But when I've observed it, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty intricate. Right? Because you're, you know, again, forgive me, I'm making an illustration of something I'm ignorant to, but you know, it's like they do this, right? <laughs> Sorry. I'm not minimizing it because it's very intricate. So I'm not minimizing what's happening. But you know, they're doing this, and, and it, sometimes it's going so fast, it's like crazy. It's like around the loop, pull the loop, around the loop, pull the loop. That's, I think there's loops. That's all I know. There's loops, and you pull one, you go around another. So that's, that's what I got. But what's incredible is they'll be doing it, and then they'll go, ah, and then you're like, I have, to, I have to pull this out, pull this out, pull this out, because some, something went crooked. I mean, it's probably only happened once in our house, I'm sure, but, you know, it's, it just, it happens, right? But it's this incredible thing that takes place, the knitting, and so that's what David uses. He says, you knit me together. You have to, you have to look at knitting. You have to look at the loops. You have to circle the loops, you know, whatever you do, but you have to do that. It takes brain power. It takes consideration. And then if you do anything fancy like extra colors or something that's not a square, I mean, you know, there's all this other stuff. And so here's, here David says, when I was in the womb, you were knitting. And obviously that's allegorical. There wasn't like a little mini Jesus in there like, you know, putting you together. But, but you, you get the point. The, the point being that, that he was involved. And then, but that's just as a side note because we don't want to skip things over. That, there's a question there, right? 
What about somebody who's born with a disability? Did God knit that? And here I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea. But what I do know is this. When he and his disciples come upon a blind, a blind man and they ask their weird question about prenatal sin, and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You're like, well, that, he sinned in utero. Interesting question there, Pete. So when he evaluates it, Jesus says this, sin had nothing to do with it. He said, this guy didn't sin and neither did his parents. He said, this guy was born blind so that God's glory could be manifested through him. And I think that's important. I don't know how God works everything together for good. I don't know how that works. It's too wonderful for me. But I know this. There's no disability that a person can be born with, even a baby who lives for a couple days, that there's not some reason, some way, that God can get glory in that. And glory, remember, it's good opinion. That's what it means. There's some way that in the, in, in the most tragic of situations, even with a child, to be able to look at God and say, what do you want me to learn from this? Even if it's just to go through the grief to find supernatural comfort in that grief. Or the grief to be able to come alongside someone else who maybe couldn't handle it like you could and say, it's going to be okay. So it's important that there's always outliers. Well, what, did God did this? Did God did that? I don't know. But what I do know is any human being who calls upon the name of the Lord will find his glory. They'll find his good opinion. They'll find who he really is. And this is one of the reasons. I'm not a political guy. I think you guys know that. But this is one of the reasons why, for the most part, well, not for the all part, I want to be careful, I really don't want any emails, but why, as Christians, we vote against abortion? Because when you abort a fetus, you stop the knitting. And here's the thing, did God, does God know every single abortion that's ever taken place, and did he know it would take place? Absolutely. But see, just like you and I get options every day, right? Every second, we have an option. Am I going to help the person next to me to get closer to God, or am I going to help the person next to me get farther from God, right? We have those options every day. God doesn't rob us of the option just because he knows we won't take it, does he? And so when we slay a baby, what we do is we take every possibility that that baby ever had, that that soul had, that God would have wanted for it, and we destroy it. And there's a side note to that. We are biological people. And so the, one of the things that never gets talked about is the fact that 70, like 72, 73% of women that have abortions, they have lasting depression from it. It's pretty wild, the stats. When you start looking at statistics about abortion, what happens to people and stuff like that. So here's the thing. If you had an abortion... You, it's not the unforgivable sin. There's no condemnation from us or from God about it. It's not like you can't go on and enjoy. In your darkest day, he's been with you in that. So there's no condemnation here for people that have had abortions, and hopefully we won't have that. It doesn't mean we're not going to vote for it. It doesn't mean we're not going to help people to hopefully adopt or find adoption and find other ways. It just means that we're just looking at theologically, why is it that we don't want to do that? I also find it interesting that a lot of the people that some people would want to abort get celebrated when they're successful with their disability. God gives glory. It's incredible how it works. He says this, verse 12, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Think about that for a second. Verse 18, If I would count them, they, would be, they are more than the sand. 
I awake and I am still with you. Think about that for a second. David says this. He's not saying how, how great are the thoughts that I have towards you. David is saying how great are your thoughts that you have towards me. And David says this. He says, I can't count how many thoughts you have about me. If I tried to count the thoughts that you had about me, it would be like if I tried to count all the sand that's on the planet. I mean, this guy's from Israel. He knows sand, right? That's a lot of sand. And he says, that's how much God thinks about you, about him, about you. He's thinking about you all the time. He's for you all the time. There's never a time when he's against you. There's never a time where he's, he's trying to get you. There's never a time where he's condemning you in Christ, if you have trusted Christ. Now, we know for those who reject what Jesus did for them, it says that the condemnation abides upon them all day long. Honestly, I'm not convinced it's not ultimately their own condemnation, and then in the end, it'll be condemnation from God, but that's just a theory. You throw it away. But we know that those who reject Jesus, that their sin is over their head. The judgment is coming. But for those who have received Christ, the sum of the thoughts that he has for you, the forgiveness that's being engaged, it cannot be counted how much he loves you. It cannot be counted how much he thinks well of you, knowing everything about you. He's incredible. He's too wonderful for us. We can't fully know it. Then he goes on in verse 19, and he's talking about the wicked. Now, this is very covenantal, and what I mean is we don't claim these verses the way they claim those verses because we are not in the Old Covenant, and we're not fighting Philistines for our land, right? We're not part of the Jewish Covenant, so we don't, we're not going to go in, oh, that you would slay the wicked, right? That's not what Jesus taught us to do. Jesus taught us to love those that hate us, right? Treat well those that abuse us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 talks all about the, the Christian life of, of, of treating people well when somebody assaults us, that we speak well to them back, these different things. So we don't claim this to go, yeah, yeah. Would you would slay the wicked? All those other people that don't agree with me. Those are the wicked people. It's not what he's, he, he's talking about a covenant here where God said, I'm going to give you the land and you need to go take it, right? Not our covenant. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do, not, uh, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You're like, well, that's, whoa, okay, that's robust. We don't have time to, to, to do that uh, right now. If you're interested, we can talk about it afterwards, but not right now. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. And try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's why David was called a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because he did everything right. It's because he was always willing to invite God in to show him where he was doing something wrong. Does that make sense? And so for us, we, you know, we have, it's interesting, if we were to go to 1 Corinthians 11 and, and read uh, about what Paul says for the Lord's Supper, one of the things he says is he says, let a man examine himself and then let him eat. And so Jesus told us that this time of the, we actually have oyster crackers this morning, so you're welcome. We ran out of matzahs. But uh, you almost had cherry juice too, but we saved the day and somebody got some uh, grape juice going. But... Um, <laughs> 
know, when Jesus talked to us, though, when he told the disciples, he said, when you eat the bread, I want you to remember my body. I want you to remember that, he says, my whole life was for you. I came here for you. I was thinking about you. I love you. And remember, in, in Luke, he tells them, I'm not going to eat again until I eat again with you in heaven. I'm going I'm to wait till we can have a special dinner again. And so, but of the blood, he said, look, this is the new covenant, my blood. He says, whenever you do this, whenever you get together, he's redefining Passover. For, you know, the last couple millennia, Passover has been about the fact that God delivered them from Egypt by the blood of a lamb, right? That they put blood on, a, on a, the, the lamb's blood on a doorpost, and so the destroyer passed over them, and they weren't destroyed. And actually, it went for any Egyptian that did it, too. That's what it was a remembrance. So Jesus comes along and he says, okay, now there's a new covenant. You don't have to remember that covenant anymore. It's, I mean, that would have been just incredible to any Jew. No, no, no. It's not about remembering that you got out of Egypt. Now it's about remembering that all of your forgiveness are going to lie in my blood. All of your fellowship with God is not going to be from the blood of bulls and goats anymore. It's not going to be from the day of Yom Kippur and the blood of a red heifer. It's not going to have anything to do with the mercy seat. It's none of that. He says, through my blood and my blood alone. And so I just encourage you, like David here in the last of his psalm, he says, you know what? Search me and know me and show me if there be any evil way in me. That's a good prayer. Paul says, let's examine ourselves before we partake. If, you're, if you feel stuck in your sin and you're in a place where you want to cry out to God, communion is the per- perfect time to do that. You just say, here I am, Lord. I'm here to remember the body that you gave for me. I'm here to remember the blood that purchased and the only thing that could purchase my forgiveness and my righteousness with you. If there's things in your life that you're holding on to, confess it. Say the same thing. Remember that? Confession. Say the same thing. Lord, I know this isn't what you want, but I keep on doing it. And frankly, my day is getting pretty dark. Frankly, I feel like I'm in pretty deep into the sea right now. Lord, deliver me. Lord, save me. I think Lord, save me is probably one of the best prayers in the entire Bible. We get into like the Daniel 9 and all these, all the good prayers are on chapter 9. It's kind of weird. But, you know, we get into all these 9s throughout the Old Testament. Oh, did you pray the prayer of Daniel? Did you pray, did you pray the prayer of Peter standing right next to Jesus, drowning? And he just says, Lord, save me. And Jesus says, well, you know what? If you show me some true faith and some repentance, um, if I see fruit in your life that's worthy of repentance and, you know, you, you know swim extra hard to try to get back, then... You know, I'll, I'll make sure you get back on the boat, buddy. No, it says he just reached out and grabbed him. He didn't have to have this big theological prayer. Oh, the sin of my people. You know, all the prayers we love to get into. We want to, oh, Lord, save me. You're standing right next to me. I should be more than able to walk on the water because I'm staring at you. But you know what? My situation has overcome your presence because I've let it. And now I'm sinking. And that's where you're at. If that's where you're at today, just cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. You don't have to have this cool prayer where God somehow, you earn it. You don't have to have all the theological answers. You just have to repent. You just have to turn back to God. Say the same thing. Lord, save me. And he's right there. His hand will be there to guide you. And if you're tore up today, you, you feel like, you know, I think it's Psalm 43 where David says, my sin has gone over my head. If that's where you're at today, you just go, my sin's gone over my head. I cannot come back from it. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you. No one here is beyond help. It's never happened in the history of the gospel of a saved individual. No one has ever been beyond help. And so if you're struggling, come get help. There's no condemnation in it. There's no 
Nobody's going to give you a lecture and I told you so. We're just going to love you, do what we can to help you, and we'll pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bread and for the cup. Thank you for your word and the promises. Thank you for the patriarchs and the, the men and women of old that were considered men and women of faith, and yet they were just like us. Lord, thank you that you take failures, you take broken people, you take sinners, and Lord, you, you just completely revamp our lives. Lord, we thank you that you've never given up on us, you've never left us, you've never been perplexed by us, you've never been repelled from us. But Lord, thank you that your thoughts towards us are more of the sand than the sea. Lord, we praise you that someday we'll be with you and we'll know you as we're known. We praise you that someday our trials will be over and instead we'll just be in heaven where there's fellowship and bliss and peace. And we look forward to that day. In the meantime, would you please continue to convict our hearts and encourage our hearts, continue to work in us so that we can be, um, I don't know, efficient, if we can be productive in your kingdom, and that our own lives would radiate your goodness to others. Thank you for being kind to us. We appreciate it in Jesus' name.